When following and serving Jesus, should I be motivated by rewards? If not, then why did Jesus talk so much about rewards? I know I'm in it for him and his kingdom, but is there a more practical side to salvation and eternal life? For all I'm expected to give up, is it okay to ask, what's in it for me? Hi, this is Hansen from Archivist Awakening, a ministry dedicated to the awakening of the saints to know and fulfill our God-given kingdom assignments. This is what Kingdom 101 is all about. We revisit kingdom fundamentals to know Jesus our King, to embrace His kingdom that we may receive and move on kingdom assignments according to His kingdom ways. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Lord, will you be with us, Lord, as we get into this teaching? As always, Holy Spirit, be with me and everyone listening and tuning in. Teach us, guide us, Lord, in the things of your kingdom. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage is a rather long one, from Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, all the way to Matthew 20, verse 16. Although it crosses from one chapter to the next, it is one continuous unit making the same point. We know this because both of these sections end with the same proverb about the first being last and the last first. We will address this in two parts. In part 1, Matthew chapter 19 verses 27 to 31st, and this concludes Jesus' teaching to his disciples after the encounter with the rich young ruler. In part 2, which is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, this is the parable that illustrates and explains the teaching. Well, before we get into the details, it is important for us to review our previous teaching in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 26, about the rich young man who approaches Jesus full of enthusiasm and confidence, but leaves sad and empty. Well, here are some key points to note. The terms inheriting eternal life, entering the kingdom of God, salvation, and also following Jesus, they all refer to the same thing. We are saved by grace through faith, definitely. But faith in Jesus means to follow Jesus. Faith is not merely agreeing that Jesus is Savior and King, but also being awakened, aligned, and assigned for Jesus and the purposes of His kingdom. Well, beware of pride along the way. It is a warning that possessions, positions, and priorities can result in pride that keeps one from believing, knowing, following, and obeying Jesus wholeheartedly and unreservedly from entering the kingdom. And especially those who have lots, the rich as it were, we must take note of all these things. Well, what is impossible with pride, God makes it possible through humility. The kingdom of God belongs to the humble. Those who trust like little children, relying wholly on Him as they submit and obey without question. Well, the rich young man met the king but missed the kingdom. Unwilling to give up the things of the present age, he missed out on the eternal rewards of the kingdom. Holding on to his everything, he ended up with nothing. Well, at this point, the disciples all have one burning question in their hearts. And who else but Peter will be the one to ask it? 
Let's start with part 1. Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 to 30. Let's look at the question that Peter asked. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? If you want to paraphrase it, it would sound something like this. When we give up things to follow you, Jesus, what's in it for us? Trust Peter to clarify the details. Lord, what's in it for me? I mean, salvation, having eternal life, inheriting the kingdom, and they all sound really good. But what does it really mean in practical terms? Finally, finally, Lord, what do we get for following you, Lord? Thank God for Peter's boldness to ask Jesus directly. I think you and I, we have the same questions in our heart too, right? Well, let's see what Jesus' answer is. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Well, let's unpack this a little bit and let's see what Jesus is really saying. To those who deny themselves, give up things, and follow Jesus. Now, I must make this very, very clear. There's a lot of emphasis about following Jesus, which means obeying Him, serving Him. Not just faith to believe, but faith to follow. First, we see that in the regeneration. What is the regeneration? It's made up of two Greek words that means again and the genesis. In other words, there will be a new beginning, a rebirth, a renewal of all things. Now, this concept and picture will not be unfamiliar to the Jews. The Bible and the scripture in the Hebrew text speaks of new heavens and also new earth. In Isaac 65 verse 17, Isaiah 66 verse 22, the Jews would be looking forward to this regeneration. But also for us as New Testament believers, new heavens and new earth have also been mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, and Revelations chapters 21 to 22 describe this in great detail. In other words, look beyond what is temporary, what is here and now. Live for the eternal because there will be a new creation, a new start, a new beginning, new heavens and new earth. Now, what happens for those who have followed Jesus? What happens in this regeneration? Well, the Lord says to the disciples, you will sit on 12 thrones. You will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. It's about ruling and reigning with Jesus. But is it only for the 12 apostles? Well, this seems to suggest it very clearly here. But I believe that this is a general promise for those who follow the Lord. You see, this privilege is also extended to anyone, the saints who follow Jesus faithfully. The Apostle Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 
that don't you know that you, the saints, we will be judging not just the angels but also the entire world. And so this speaks of a promise of a reward that will come that if we will follow him well and faithfully, we can expect something like that. Next, the Lord says, if anyone would leave all these things, the present resources and even relationships for him, what we leave for Jesus, we will receive from Jesus. And what a great promise. It says, in greater measure, hundredfold. And is it not true that right now, the moment we step into the things of the kingdom, we receive relationships in the kingdom, brothers, sisters, spiritual fathers and mothers. We receive kingdom resource beyond our wildest imagination. And it's not just for the afterlife in the regeneration. It speaks also the here and now. In Mark chapter 10, verse 30, which is a parallel passage, Mark records, now in this time, this is what you're going to get immediately and you can expect even more later. But Mark also carefully inserts the word and persecutions too. Because when we begin to follow Jesus, it's not going to be a smooth journey all the time. In fact, we can expect sacrifice and for some, even loss. But at the end, we can look to eternal life. Because following Jesus means to inherit finally eternal life. Finally being saved into the fullness of the kingdom. And this is in the age to come. Eternal life begins now, but there will be a fullness that we can look to and step into. So the Lord answered Peter in such detail. Can you imagine Peter's response now? Oh, wow, this is really cool, right? Look at how much we've given up. We've left everything. Check out what we will receive. And of course, I mean, can you imagine that? We were called first, right, Jesus? We must be the best. And so we obviously get the most. At this point, I would say, careful, Peter. You've got to read the rest of this passage. Be careful, my dear brother, lest your name be changed again. And this time it's called proud or prideful, Peter. See, Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. Jesus does not hold it against Peter for asking about rewards or asking, what's in it for me? This is because Jesus has no issues absolutely talking about rewards. He openly states rewards because he knows that those who are serious about following him may lose everything, including their lives. And in exchange, they need to know what they will receive in return. As such, Jesus graciously replies without any hesitation. But he proceeds to teach Peter and the disciples what the right kingdom posture and perspective of rewards should be. And so he adds this word, but, and he continues with this statement in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Although this can apply to the surprising turn of events where many find themselves not in the kingdom of God, like the rich young man, it is more accurately applied to those who are disciples, believers, and followers of Jesus. I must quickly add, it does not refer to salvation per se, but what one finally receives for his service to the Lord. Jesus was highlighting that the giving of rewards in the kingdom of God will be very different 
from what we are used to in this world. Hence the word, but. And then he begins the parable, for the kingdom of heaven is like this. At this point, I want you to imagine Peter's response again. Huh? Excuse me? I thought we were first. You mean we are going to be last? So Jesus continues to teach his disciples and he uses a parable to illustrate and to explain. Let's move on to part two. Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 to 16 is about the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Now there are many different interpretations as well as speculations. And again, the context, what we covered in part one, will help us determine what may be Jesus' main point. It addresses Peter's question. What will we get? What's in it for us, Lord? What's in it for me? It clarifies then Jesus' answer about the first being last and the last being first. Let's have an overview of the parable. Parables are simple stories with familiar characters and items, very, very typical situations, easily relatable, easily understood. So in this parable, there's a landowner and he needs workers for his vineyard. Presumably it's harvest time. Again, a very typical picture. So early in the morning at 6 a.m., he goes out, he recruits workers at an agreed rate of one denarius, which is the minimum daily wage. And then throughout the day, he goes out to recruit workers again. But this is not really typical which then shows and demonstrates that the details of this parable are provided specially to communicate a certain spiritual truth. So he goes out at 9 a.m., which is the third hour. He says, I'll pay you what is right. Just, just come, join me. He does the same thing at 12 noon, the sixth hour, and then later at 3 p.m., which is the ninth hour. Now, finally, at the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m., he hires the workers, which no one hired. And he may not have even mentioned the payment at all based on an earlier manuscript. That phrase is not there. It's just presumed that he promises to pay what is right just like those before. Finally, we get to the end of the 12-hour day, 6 p.m., and it's payment time. Everybody gets the same pay of one denarius, regardless of when they were recruited. Now, obviously, those who work the full day, the full 12 hours, they complain, hey, this is not fair. Let's pause for a moment. I have a question for you. Would you complain too? Would you write an email and send a letter to the Ministry of Manpower? You see, this response is not unexpected at all. We totally get it, right? We understand why the 12-hour workers responded in such a manner. The daily rate may have been the same, but the hourly rates definitely were not the same. I mean, imagine if you were one of those early workers and you see someone being paid right at the end there and you get one denarius for working only one hour. Wow, your eyes might have lit up imagining if I worked 12 hours, then I would have gotten 12 denarius. Well, they didn't, and that's why they complain. And so the landowner explains that he has done nothing wrong. To the first group, he paid according to what was agreed. But for the rest, he gave according to his own wish. Let's read Matthew chapter 20, verses 13, 14, and 15. 
But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for one denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Again, the characters and the details of this parable may be relatable, easily understood. However, depending on which group of workers you identify with, the principle may not be quite as easy to accept. What exactly is Jesus saying? What is he revealing about the kingdom of God? To understand this, let's consider two broad points in this parable. One, the relationship between the landowner and the workers. And two, the way remuneration and rewards are given. Let's consider the relationship first. The relationship between the landowner and the workers. In the parable, it is obvious that the landowner refers to God or Jesus as our king. What Jesus is trying to show us is that God is just and he always does what is right. He is both just and he is right. God is also good. He's gracious and he is generous. This is so clearly portrayed and demonstrated through the details in this parable. Now, this is a very important starting point. If this is not settled in our hearts, then the rest of the points would mean nothing very much. God is good, gracious, generous. He's just and he always does what is right. Let's look at the workers. The workers obviously refer to believers, but not just believers, followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, workers are prepared and ready to work. They wait for the opportunity and the timing. When we look at those that have been standing around waiting to be hired, we must not have the wrong impression that they will just idle and not willing to do anything. No, they were waiting. They were willing to work. They were ready, except that they were waiting for that opportunity and the timing. Now, what do workers do? Workers work. And it's expected of all workers to do what is right and what is required. Workers are to do their best. Workers are to fulfill their tasks. Workers are to complete their assignments. And here's a word of caution, because in the Bible and in scriptures, workers and servants who do not work are dealt with rather severely in all the other passages and parables. So when we consider this point about relationship, we must look at who God is, what He's all about, and who we are as workers and what's required of us. Now, with this at the starting point, then we can see from this parable that this relationship must be based on trust and not on terms. Let me explain. See, in the world, it's about terms. But in the kingdom, it's about trust. The workers all in the later shifts, you notice that they all went to work on the word of the landowner. Simply, whatever is right, I will give you. No question asked. They just trusted him because they were willing to work. They were ready to work. Question for us. 
Do we trust God to give and provide what is right? Or do we state, negotiate, and demand our terms with Him? <laughs> if I do this, then God, you must give this. Um, too little, Lord. Can I negotiate 30% more? Lord, if you promise me this, then I'll do what you say. Sort of reminds me of the patriarch Jacob, right? Lord, if you bless me and look after me, you can be my God then. How presumptuous, how prideful. See, those who negotiate and agree on a price will get just that, nothing more, nothing less. These will also do just enough to get what is agreed on, right? Don't you agree that in our hearts, many of us would like get by by the skin of our teeth. We just do what's right, what's enough. But consider those who trust. They will do as much as is required of them to the best of their ability, leaving the remuneration and the reward to the Lord. I made a very simple observation years ago. Many will struggle with this idea of finance and of provision when it comes to serving the Lord. And for many, they consider that if I want to serve the Lord, then I might have to give up my salary or give up something there. And we struggle because many will only see God provide through monthly salaries, also known as terms, right? If I work for this month, you will pay me this much with CPF and other contributions. So when we see God in this way, that He can only provide through these terms and salaries, then that's all that we will receive. But my point of view is this, and my question, why be limited by salary? Why don't we break this mindset? Why don't we allow the Lord to give whatever He wants to give and according to what He deems fit or right? Now, I know this is really scary because some of our faith might be in that monthly transaction that comes into our bank account. But I've seen that our God does not have to be limited by these terms. If we trust Him, if we know that He is good and He's gracious and He's generous, why don't we just trust Him and not limit Him to these terms that we set? And so if we ask this question, what's in it for me? This is what my answer would be. Just do what is right and expected. Trust God to give what is right and unexpected. That would be a good relationship, wouldn't it be? Trust Him. Don't set terms. God is good, generous, and gracious. He's just and will always do things right. I'll just be the worker I'm supposed to be. With trust as the basis of our relationship with God, let's consider how He remunerates and rewards. This parable clearly demonstrates that God gives according to covenantal grace and not according to contractual law. Let me explain. How would I fare at a kingdom performance appraisal according to God's KPIs? Have you ever thought about this? If remuneration and rewards were based solely on my performance, on the terms of the contract, I don't think I'd fare very well. We often think that God dealt with Israel strictly by the law. When throughout scriptures, I see that he extended and displayed lots and lots 
and lots of mercy and grace. Yes, it was the covenant, but grace was also there. It was the leaders who made it legalistic and difficult for the people. And sadly, we tend to be like that too. Now, isn't it odd? We don't want God to evaluate us by the law, the terms. But we want Him to pay and reward us according to the law, the terms. Don't we realize that if we base our remuneration and rewards according to the terms of the law, then we will miss the mark totally and not even be rewarded. Worse, we judge others by the same terms of the contract. And we get really upset if and when they receive more than what we think they should deserve or not. And even worse, we think we should receive even more than they they don't deserve it, definitely, but we sure do. See, in the parable, the first group was paid according to the terms, but the other groups by grace. And here's the question. Do you prefer to be paid and rewarded by contractual law according to the terms or by covenantal grace according to the heart of God? Then there's the question of, does everyone get the same rewards? Is it equal, the same for all? Well, this has caused a lot of confusion and like, like I said, lots of speculation and different interpretations. But I believe that the point of the parable is not that everyone gets equal rewards regardless of what one does, but that God's grace is similarly extended to everyone. Clearly, the scriptures tell us that we are rewarded according to our works. Let me give you some examples. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, that when He comes, He will reward each according to His works. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul declares that someone plants, someone waters, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And right at the end in Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus declares, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So we see that we are rewarded according to our works, but even so, it will always be according to his grace, entirely by his grace. And so it's same, same, the same grace, but it's different, as in the rewards will be given accordingly as the Lord deems fit. Even Paul, when teaching to the church uh, in Corinth, that there will be different degrees of glory when it comes to the time of the resurrection. One, the glory of the sun. Another, the glory of the moon. The glory of the stars. And one will differ from another. And I believe this is another way of illustrating and showing that later on, the glorification is of a different degree according to how we have lived or how we have served. But I want to stress that it is always according to the grace of God, as we have already outlined earlier. But being by grace does not mean that we don't work, or we do half-hearted work, or shoddy work, that we presume upon this grace and to receive this grace in vain. Please don't get the wrong idea. Let me state once more. Workers work, and workers must do what is right and expected. I find it really odd, and I think it's potentially dangerous, that there are many, many believers we can read about Jesus' teaching 
about servants and workers and still convince ourselves that we don't need to serve or we don't need to work. Just believe and you will have eternal life and full stop. Now, this is very, very dangerous in a way that we have been taught to understand this. Grace doesn't mean that we don't work. We work because we have grace and it is by His grace. And once more, I must stress, Jesus wants that wicked and lazy servants will be dealt with rather severely. Of course, coming back to rewards, what are the rewards? Finally, again I say, I don't have to worry. As servants, as workers, my basis of my relationship with God is trust. I merely do my very, very best. And I will leave God to provide and reward accordingly by His grace. And I will just be so ready to be surprised by His goodness, His generosity, as well as His grace. So what's in it for me? I just do what is right and expected. And I trust God to give what is right and unexpected. Are the rewards and remuneration only to be received in the regeneration? Then what about now? What's in it for me now? I can't be expected to live on nothing, can I? And this is where I find this parable very encouraging also. You notice that the workers all received a denarius, and that's a daily wage to meet their daily needs. If we remember the prayer of our Lord teaching us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. It points back even to the time of the wilderness when manna was provided supernaturally to meet daily needs. Day to day, they never lacked. And I believe the Lord is trying to show us that every need, even now, will be provided regardless of the size of our household or whatever our needs may be. But take note, we are expected to work and God provides through that. Look at the principle of the manna. The manna is given, but they are expected to go out and gather. They are not to sit around and wait for provision to come in. God provides the opportunity. He opens the opportunity. We do what is necessary, expected and required. And God provides either directly to us or through others in the kingdom community, again entirely by His grace. But there's a little issue in this present life. We notice that well, however hard we try, there will be unequal distribution. Everyone may work, and some may work even harder. But the fact of the matter is, some will have more, and others may have less. And here's a lesson and a message even for those who have more, those who are rich or have a lot more to spare. The same reminder, don't be proud because it is by grace. It's not because you worked harder and someone else did not work as hard. The point is there will be uneven distribution, especially in this time. Learn how to extend grace as you have received grace. Look out for the others. Extend grace to the poor as well as to the needy and those who definitely require a little bit more than what you may have. Learn to share as well as to give, not because they deserve it, but because it is a demonstration of the grace of God. There was a commentary made about this parable. If God's generosity was to be represented by a man, then such a man would be very different from any man ever encountered.
because it's a kingdom principle and requires kingdom hearts to be able to extend that same grace and that love and compassion as our King would to each and every one of us. So what's in it for me now? I believe eternal life begins right now. We can experience that kingdom community and kingdom provision if we would learn to move in kingdom ways. The way of the kingdom sounds right and it sounds good because it is. But there's a challenge we all struggle with. And here again is the issue and the problem of pride. Where we think more highly of ourselves than we are. And when pride blinds us, this is how we respond. We become competitive. I think I'm better. I become calculative. I did more than you. I begin to complain. I deserve more. I'm covetous because I want more. And Jesus in this parable uses the phrase, is your eye evil? Are you upset that I'm good? Or is it because your eye is evil? You're looking at someone with a bad eye, a wrong eye. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 9 speaks of an eye that is evil refusing to give to the servant anything, withholding. 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 9, King Saul eyed David with jealousy. That's an evil eye. Matthew chapter 6, 22 to 23 speaks about an eye that is not healthy, not good, an evil eye. An evil eye is a result of pride. We look at people with envy, with jealousy. I'm envious because I want what others have. I think I deserve it. I'm jealous because I believe what they have rightly belongs to me. It's mine. I begin to despise them. I begin to look down on others. And when we have this evil eye syndrome, we find it very hard to see and to accept that everything is by God's grace because simply He's good and He wants to give to all. Our King wants us to be like Him, to be good, to be gracious, to be generous. And this is only possible if we recognize and acknowledge that everything we have and everything that we're going to get is by God's grace. Once we can resolve that within our hearts, this begins to bring us into a right posture and a position of humility and it will protect us from pride and rid us of the evil eye. Finally, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, Jesus speaks of a reversal. So the last will be first and the first last. This verse ties back to Jesus' answer to Peter. In 19 verse 30, it begins with a but, signaling a contrast to what may be commonly expected. But here it concludes with a so, in the same way, drawing from the parable, emphasizing that outcomes may be very, very unexpected. But what does it really mean? Let me tell you what it does not say. This is not that rich disciples finally will become poor and the poor will become rich in the kingdom of God. It's also not that those who work one hour a little bit can do as much as those who work all day. It's also not that all men are equal or all kingdom work is equal. And some even think that this is about the Gentiles who are last and the Jews who are first. 
Well, the context here doesn't really support this. This is better explained in Luke chapter 13, verse 30. Again, I say, it's about relationship, remuneration, and rewards. It's about workers who trust the master and about remuneration and rewards by grace. The deeper the trust, the greater the willingness to sacrifice for the sake of the work of the kingdom. And this may result in having less and less in this world and even being last. But in God's kingdom, by His grace, everything can be reversed and the last can become first. In the kingdom, really, it doesn't matter who is first or who is last, even as we speak about greatness in the kingdom, because there are lots of rewards we can look forward to. But we don't have to be overly concerned what we will get or what others will get. Finally, everything is by God's grace. Every reward will be just and will be right. So what's in it for me? Just do what is right and expect it and just trust God to give what is right and unexpected. Jesus concludes his parable, but again, I love to imagine Peter's response. Oh dear, I better not ask anymore. Just follow Jesus. Be obedient. Do what is expected of me. And I'll leave the rest to him to give and to reward. Let's bring this to a close. I mentioned earlier that the details of this parable may be relatable and easily understood. However, the principle may not be quite as easy to accept, especially if I remain the focus, the center of attention, if my concern is always, what's in it for me? Again, I must stress that our King, Jesus, is not against remuneration and rewards. He is more than happy to motivate us because he knows that following him is not easy. It requires sacrifice and even loss. However, the Lord wants us to know and be fully convinced that he's good, he's gracious, and he's generous. If we can get our relationship right with him, we never have to worry about the terms of the contract. We can trust him fully, and he will take care of the remuneration and rewards entirely by His grace, beyond our expectations. The world will never hire, pay, or reward the way our King does. That's because the ways of the world are never the ways of the upside-down kingdom. For sure, in the regeneration, there will be many reversals and surprises. But what we give up for Jesus today, to follow and serve Him, we will receive in full and more by His grace beyond our expectations. So, whilst it's not wrong to ask, what's in it for me? It's way better to just do what is right and expected of me and trust God to give what is right and unexpected to me. And what a glorious and gracious surprise it will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're good you're gracious, you're generous. Lord Jesus, you do what is just and what is right always. We put our trust in you, Lord. Help us to take our eyes off ourselves and what we may be inconvenienced with when we give up things for you. But we know that what we give up, Lord, you will give back even more in the time when we meet with you. 
We trust you, Lord. Help us to do well because we know it is entirely by your grace. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us and reminding us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining me for another Kingdom 101 teaching. For past teachings, visit our website, kingdom101.archivistawakening.org. Until the next time, this is Hanson signing off. Stay awakened, aligned, and assigned. God bless you.